Well, we're reading from Acts 16 this evening, Acts 16, and we'll start reading in verse 6, and then we'll carry on through to verse 25. Let's hear God's word, Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 25. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia, And help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made the direct voyage to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and the Roman colony. We remained there, uh, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain for fortune by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hopes of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in, in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Well, may God bless his word to us as we take some time to look at that in a little while. Well, I want us to look at the conversion of Lydia. It's quite funny. In some versions of the Bible, they have the title above, The First Convert in Europe. That's obviously by now very controversial because apparently Europe includes Turkey. And obviously the gospel had been in Turkey a long while before this point. But uh, nevertheless, it's a joyous thing, isn't it? When we hear of anyone coming to faith, we get told, don't we, that there is joy in heaven, even at one soul that is brought to salvation. And this is what we have here, one person coming to faith. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that as we come to Scripture, you get these varying waves, especially in the book of Acts, as to one, then lords, then another one, then maybe another one, and then lords coming to faith. And each of them is treated with the same joy and has as much attention to them as each other. And it reminds us, that salvation is one of those great things. That it's something that we should treasure, that's something that we should rejoice in, that it's something that is miraculous and glorious. And so we come to Paul and Silas and Timothy coming to Greece, to Macedonia. And we get some interesting comments don't we in the passage that leads us to there and they sometimes are things that we don't usually associate with God and with his spirit now we get told that the spirit had forbidden them from speaking the word in Asia what a fascinating sentence that God's spirit didn't allow them to preach in a specific place Think of the Spirit as the one who enables us to preach, don't we? Enables us to go out and be bold in our proclamation. But here, the Spirit yeah. forbids them. And we also hear that they get told by the Spirit, or led by the Spirit, to not feel allowed to enter into Bithynia. And so we can see, just as we come to this history of them getting to Macedonia, that God wants them to go there. That God is leading them to this place. And I think we need to get that into our heads, that where we are now is the leading of God. People often hear of missionaries talking, they hear of the story of how they've been led to a specific place, and they go, oh, I wish I was led in that way. You're not here by coincidence. You're not in this church tonight by coincidence. And you're not living where you are 
by coincidence. And you're not working where you are by coincidence. It is the Lord leading. And he has a purpose that we are to find and we are to follow. So they go and they get to Philippi. I guess from the description that we get, it makes sense, doesn't it? They go to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. It's the big place. We often, naturally, when we go to somewhere, look for the big place. Because you usually find that everything that you need is in that place, don't you? If you need to buy food... You don't tend to find it out in the rural areas. You tend to find it in the cities. And with Paul and Silas and Timothy, as they want to preach the word, they want to go to where people are. So it makes sense that they go to the city, to where people are. And what's amazing about them is that the first thing that they seek to do is to gather with God's people. They there... They stay there for a few days. We don't know what day they arrived. We don't know how many days elapsed before the Sabbath day. But the Sabbath day comes. And their heart and their desire is to meet with God's people. That's the first thing that we notice about them, is that they want to be where God's people are. Now, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll know full well that generally when Paul and Barnabas, as it was in the first missionary journey, the first place they went to, wherever they went, was to where the synagogue was. Because that's where the people who had some concept of God were. That's where the worshippers of God were. I'm not saying that they all understood who God was, because they clearly did dead. Because if you read and follow the missionary journey of Paul, they go to the synagogue, and it's quite often the Jews that try to kill them and get them sent out as happens in um, Lystra. But their aim is to meet with people of the same mind as them, who appreciate the importance of God and giving God the glory. And so they go, and they go outside the city, and there's something to be noted there, isn't there? That the people of God here in Philippi, had to go outside the city walls. Now, where did the, why did people have to go outside the city walls generally? Well, because they were welcome in society. They were accepted and acknowledged in society. You think of the Jewish people who were outside the city. Well, the lepers were outside the city. They weren't acceptable to be in the city because they were unclean. They were not like everybody else. The transgressors were sent outside the city. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was crucified, was crucified outside the city walls. He wasn't accepted. And it's the same thing that we have here, that the people of God had to gather outside the city walls because the society that they lived in didn't accept them they were oddbods they were freaks they weren't normal in the eyes of the people of Philippi 
And there's an element to which that makes sense, doesn't it? Because any believer, any worshipper in God is going to stand out in a society that's completely pagan. In any society that doesn't believe that there is an absolute authority. That doesn't believe that we've been created. That doesn't believe that we're answerable. And in some ways we're a bit like that in this day and generation. Not necessarily outside the city walls, but we're on the periphery of society. We're not acknowledged in the way that we once were. We're not regarded. We're disparaged. We're ridiculed. We're laughed at. We are outside the city gates. Because the world doesn't want to hear what we've got to say. It doesn't want to know about the God that we worship. It's funny, isn't it? We live in such a wonderfully tolerant society. It's happy for anything to happen. Just as long as you don't mention God. Just as long as you don't bring someone who has authority and power into the equation. And so, just as the people in Philippi left outside, we're left outside. And we shouldn't be surprised at it. It shouldn't be something that comes as unexpected to us. Because society is not going to accept God. It refuses. It's sad, isn't it, really, when you look at the description of what Scripture says. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The sad thing is that means that we live in a world of fools. Before we get too proud of ourselves, we were with them. We were fools as well. Until God came and showed himself, revealed himself to us by grace. We shouldn't be surprised that the world around us doesn't want us, isn't interested in us. Because it's not us they're not interested in. It's our Heavenly Father that they're not interested in. And that should sadden us. But anyway, they come and they go to this place. They go to the riverside. It's interesting, isn't it? It's the riverside that they go to. I've always loved rivers. Rivers and castles. But then, since most castles are by rivers, I love rivers in particular. I love rivers because they're always a place which are quite serene and calm. There's life there, but it's not in your face. But I think there's a lot more to it than that as well. We get told often in Scripture of rivers, don't we? There's a river that flows from the city that brings joy and gladness. And that river reaches out to the ends of the earth. And there's an element to when you look at the idea of a river... (coughs) There's cleaning there. There's something that quenches thirst there. There's something that we have to have for life there. There's something significant about it being by a river. Because we all need water, don't we? We all need water to survive. 
It has to come to us. We need more water more than we need food. It's strange me saying that because I obviously eat quite a bit. But I drink more. But we need it. And so we see that these people, these people who worship God, go outside the city walls and they find a river. A place of life, a place of hope, a place that reminds them of God. And Paul and Silas go to this place expecting or supposing that it was a place of prayer. They thought that this would be where the worshippers would be praying. It's quite a normal thing to expect, isn't it? That God's people would be a praying people. It's always and often been said that the prayer meeting is the boiler house of the church. Barometer of the church. You know how bold the church is in the Lord by how many are in its prayer meeting and how fervent the praying is. But it's interesting the sentence that we have here. Supposing it to be a place of prayer. That suggests to us when they got there, it probably wasn't a place of prayer. There was no one praying. They were there. We see that they were there and some of those people who were there were certainly there to worship God because Lydia was there and she was a worshipper of God. But they weren't praying. They weren't calling on the Lord, though they worshipped him. They saw him as the one of supreme value. They saw him as the one of supreme importance. But they weren't calling on him. They weren't dependent on him. In some ways they were just religious. Just as many of the people in the synagogues were. They went there because they'd heard about God. And they understood something of his character. That he was glorious. That he was wonderful. That he was worthy. That he was powerful. That he was wise. That he was able to do things for them. And they went. Intrigued. Liking that side of him. But they didn't know him personally. They were aware of him in theory, but not in heart. And so although Paul and Silas and Timothy had gone to this place, expecting to be gathered with God's people, they just found a group of women who worshipped God. But didn't know him. And that's quite a frightening reality, isn't it? That people come together to worship God. And of those people, there are some who don't know him personally. Who have no experience of him for themselves. They come because, yeah, he's worthy they like the fact that there's someone out there, but they don't know him. Well, <clears throat> Paul and his companions are there and they speak to these people. They spend time with these people. 
they discuss with these people. And what we see is that God opens hearts. We get told of Lydia. We get told who she is. She's a woman who's probably quite wealthy as a seller of purple goods. She's someone who has some status, some importance in the area. Someone who's well regarded and someone who worships God. And she listens. It's interesting that what we get told they do is speak. Speaking usually means that there's a dialogue. I'm preaching tonight. There's not much coming back from you conversation-wise. But there's an element to which when Paul, Silas and Timothy spoke, they were also finding out from these women what they understood. There was no doubt that there was questions coming to and fro from both sides. Paul was asking, well, what do you know of God, maybe? What do you think of God? Where did you hear about God? Why did you gather here on a Sabbath? What's your purpose in being here? What's the point of this in your mind? And then the women conversely probably were asking similar questions. Well, why have you come to spend time with us women? This was an era where men and women generally did, did spend time together. It was strange for a man to want to hear what a woman had to say. I suppose with our selecting hearing men, maybe we've kept that tradition up, but we leave that there. But it was odd culturally for Paul, Silas and Timothy to be there. And odd for them to want to know what was going on with these people. But they also spoke to them about, about what they knew, about what they'd experienced, about how they viewed and understood God. And it's interesting that there's an element of this that we don't do very well as Christians. We often assume we know what the people we're talking to what they need and how they need it. We often assume that we need to talk to them in this specific way to tell them the gospel, to explain the importance of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to them. But we don't speak to them. We do all the assuming for them. And it's interesting there was this huge thing going back over the last few years, well, not recent years, but going back a few years, where everybody felt that they needed to talk to non-Christians about creation. Because everybody had believed that the world had been created by the Big Bang. And for us to do good evangelism, we needed to destroy that argument that the world had come about by a big bang. There were hundreds and thousands of people who couldn't care less how the world was created. 
who didn't even care how it had come into existence. That actually, when we started arguing about it, we turned them off Christianity. Because they thought it was all an argument about this. Not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not a saviour who came to this world to transform me and us from being sinners to being saints. And we assume that that's what they needed because we didn't speak to them. We didn't find out what they thought. Don't get me wrong. What they thought is probably wrong. And there probably is misconception there. And you don't listen to someone who doesn't understand God to get knowledge. But you listen to them so that you can speak to them where they are. You listen to them so that you can share maybe the experiences that God has put you through with these people. Scripture tells us we are to comfort those with the comfort that we have received. <laughs> you can't comfort someone if you don't know what ails them. And so what we see is that Paul, Silas and Timothy speak to these people. They spend time with them. They share with them. But the gospel is there. Because as Christians, the gospel should always be there. What else have we got to say to anybody? I'm here by the grace of God. I'm sustained by the grace of God. You think I'm good. But the good you see in me is by the grace of God. All we've got to say relates to what God has done in us and for us and through us. And it's pretty obvious when you read what Paul is like. That's what he does. Wherever he goes. God has done this. This is what the Lord has done. This is how the Lord has dealt with me. This is what the Lord loves me looks like. And so he preaches the gospel to them. He shares the gospel with them. And God opens hearts. It's not the technique of what Paul does. It's not the speaking and the conversing that does the saving in this situation. It's God. It's always God. Because the reality is, is which one of us could have found the Lord for ourselves? I was lost. <laughs> Do you know what lost means? You can't find your way. Not just that you've not found the way. You can't find the way. If you could find the way, you've only gone on a diversion. We're lost. Completely lost. Totally unable to find the right way to go. As Paul puts it, dead in our sins and transgressions, lifeless, in, unable to do anything to change it. And God came and gave life, gave hope, gave salvation. You see, the faith that came to Lydia 
was a gift from God. He opened her heart to receive. Yes, everything that was necessary was there already. Christ Jesus had come. Christ Jesus had lived. Christ Jesus had died on the cross. Christ Jesus has raised from the grave. Christ Jesus has ascended. Everything necessary for salvation was there. But she needed her heart to be opened. And it was. And she in that moment was changed, was transformed, had life in her, was different. And notice that change was so obvious and conspicuous that she asked for baptism straight away. It's not the first time we see this in the book of Acts. Philip, as he spoke to the eunuch, and as he opened up that glorious chapter uh, of scripture, Isaiah 53, to the eunuch, the eunuch's heart was opened. Faith was there. And he asked, what stops me from being baptised? Nothing stopped him from being baptised. Go, what is baptism? It's a glorious picture of what God has done in the heart. If you went, it's the marriage ceremony to show the love that already exists. And it's beautiful. And Lydia is baptised. And we hear that her whole household was baptised as well. They seem to have believed too. Taken and adopted this faith for themselves also. Glorious transformation. And they're baptised. And the change is obvious. And this is where this chapter always surprises me. And I think this section we often miss as we read this portion. Because we're so enamoured by the wonderful news that Lydia is converted. We don't notice how massive the change is. And I want you to notice and listen to the last part of this little section. Verse 50. And after she was baptised and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Think about those words. Because that's what we're going to do. This was a woman who from what we read, was a single woman. Yes, she had a household, which probably meant servants. Maybe those who worked with her in her purple-selling business. Possibly parents, although we don't know that. But it seems quite clear that she wasn't married. And we're often taught as Christians to hide or make sure that we don't have the appearance of sin. This story looks very dodgy. Think about that. Paul, Silas, Timothy, single men. One of them very young, Timothy was 
probably still a teenager. Looks a bit shady, doesn't it? Looks a bit questionable. What is a single woman doing with three men in a household? This sounds like another rehab case, doesn't it? It looks all wrong. It looks really questionable. And you think, Paul, as a mature Christian, should have run from it. That's what we would say, isn't it? That would be our expectation that Paul would flee from the situation because it looks questionable. But isn't it amazing that the transformation in Lydia's life and in Paul, Silas and Timothy's lives is such that the reality is that this situation, which in almost all cases looks very questionable and shady, wasn't. The change in Lydia was so certain, notice her words, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you believe I'm a believer, if you believe that I've been transformed, if you believe that I've been quickened by the Holy Spirit, if you believe that I now no longer live for sin, but live for the Lord, stay in my house. What a testimony. That as people looked at Paul, Silas, Timothy staying in Lydia's house, they didn't go, oh, I wonder what they're up to. They said, nothing's going on there because we know Lydia, we know Paul, we know Silas, we know Timothy. Their testimony, their lives were so godly, were so different, and literally this is a new convent we're talking about, that nobody believed that the sin that most people would think that is going on is going on. What a challenge that is. In our day and in our generation, and in our situation as Christians in these days, with all the temptations, with all the things that we hear happening in Christians' lives, which shouldn't be, but are, this is what it should be like. That's a real challenge, isn't it? That not only these questionable things shouldn't be happening, but the power of the new life that comes through Jesus Christ and the change that happens in the life of a believer, that it can't happen. What a testimony that would be for our society in these days. What a witness that the salvation and the transformation that we're talking about has such an immediate and clear effect. Because it does. The salvation that is in Jesus Christ is real salvation. The challenge that that leaves us with, if this is real salvation, then what are we settling for as Christians?
What are we saying? This is what a believer looks like. And it isn't that. It's a real challenge. And I think that's something that we really need to get back to. That the standards and the change that we believe is possible in the gospel, we need to live it out. Because we are now dead to sin. That's what the picture of so <clears throat> the picture of baptism gives us, isn't it? I have died to my old self. The authority of sin is no longer on me. Yes, we sin. I'm not saying that we don't. But the change and the indwelling work of the Spirit should be such that we are markedly different. Gloriously different. That the world around us doesn't even believe it's possible for us to do wrong. Job, <coughs> as he's dealing with his friends, acquaintances, whatever you want to call them, as they question him because of what God is putting him through and say to him, you must be doing something wrong or God would not allow this to happen. Job says of himself that he's blameless. He challenges them to find anything wrong with him. Ironically enough, they don't find anything that he's done wrong all they do is talk about the circumstantial evidence. All they do is say, well, God is doing this to you. The way that we understand God, that means you're a sinner. But they couldn't find anything wrong with him. Isn't that incredible? But the truth is, is that God puts him up before the devil for that as well. Can you find anyone as blameless as Job? Go on then, devil, you find fault with him. And he tries. He puts persecution and trouble and trial and terror on him over and over again. Does the devil come back ever saying, I found this fault in him? No. Isn't that incredible? But that's what we should be as Christians. We should be so Christ-like that people cannot find fault in us. We know there's fault in us. If you listen to Job, he says, Though I am blameless, my own tongue condemns me. I know I'm a sinner. I know the motives in my head. But all you see are my actions and they're all right. We've created this level of acceptable behaviour, which is sin. We've accepted this witness to God's salvation, which is worthy of it. That's a real challenge, isn't it? For me, for you, for all of us. We are being transformed from glory to glory. We should be showing that already. We should be showing that Christ-likeness now. So that when we speak to people, 
So that when they just see us, and people do see us, and they do look at us, they go, wow. There's something clean there. There's something different there. Yeah, they're weird, and I want them at arm's length, maybe. But there's something real there. There's something God-like there. Well, we have such a salvation. Let's live it out. So that God is glorified day by day in our lives, through what we say and through what we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are still the God of salvation. Thank you that today is still the day of salvation. We thank you that the message of the gospel is still the same, that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And we thank you for the power of the salvation that we have, that it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that is at work in us. Oh Lord, forgive us for being so blasé about things. Forgive us for being so haphazard. Lord, make us different. Keep us different. So that we show it's not us, it's you. And that you are able to do this for whoever who believes in you. Lord, we thank you that the salvation of Christ is so great that we will never fully plumb to the depths of it. But Lord, we pray that we would live it and know it and experience it. For your glory's sake. Amen.